Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm Spencer Kornhaber, a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I am joined today by two other members of our culture team, staff writer Shirley Lee. Hello. And my boss, senior <laughs> editor, Lenica Cruz. That feels so weird. Hi, Spencer. <laughs> I am going to be on my best behavior here. How are you both doing? Are we full of wild and untamed emotions today? I mean, I'm ready to harmonize to um, Nobody Like You by Four Town. I am just returning from vacation. I am a little bit sunburnt, so you could say that I am turning red. Uh, <laughs> that is that is where I am at the moment, Spencer. Uh, this week we're talking about Turning Red, the latest Disney Pixar release. It's been out for a while, debuting on Disney Plus a month ago, but we wanted to talk about it because... Uh, well, there's been some discourse around the movie. Uh, it's had this kind of odd staying power. It's doing well in the streaming numbers. And also, um, I think we all kind of love it and want to just fawn over it. It's um, really a remarkably specific animated film. It's about a Chinese-Canadian 13-year-old girl living in Toronto in 2002. All Maylin Lee wants to do is hang out with her friends, go to a boy band concert. That's Lenica's Four Town. <laughs> and most importantly, she wants to make her somewhat overprotective mother proud. Uh, then one day she wakes up and she finds out that she turns into a giant, adorable red panda whenever she loses control of her emotions. As director Domi Shi put it, uh, the panda is, quote unquote, a metaphor for magical puberty. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to just ask you guys how you felt about the movie. What did you think, Shirley? I love this movie. It is absolutely a film about magical puberty, but it's also about many other things. The first time I watched it, I was surprised by how wonderfully it pulled off all these different elements, right? One is the element of puberty and coming of age. Another is the element of specificity about a Chinese-Canadian 13-year-old and what her life is like. And there's also the element of dealing with parents and I have to say this in a really serious way generational trauma Uh, not generational trauma (laughs) you would just say it's intergenerational trauma intergenerational intergenerational okay go on yeah and I think the Disney and Pixar experience is often surprising and uh, impressive and delightful and I walked away from this film being really impressed by how well it juggled all of it I went into it just incredibly, incredibly stoked for Domi Shi, the director. She mm. is the director of the short film Bao, which played before Incredibles 2 in theaters and which won an Oscar. It's about an edible dumpling child, right? It is about a steamed bun that becomes an anthropomorphized child to this mom who's suffering from empty nest syndrome she uh and she kind of takes this little steamed bun around toronto (laughs) goes on all these adventures and as the steamed bun grows up and pulls away from her she gets more and more anxious and by the end of the film to spoil bow (laughs) she she swallows him whole which is a really dark and strange beat for a film Mm -hmm. Like mm-hmm. that to take, but is also in- appropriate. And Domi Shi as a director is just someone who has really quirky ideas, who draws from a lot of different animation styles and visual presentations and is able to pull it off. And so I was really excited to see what her first feature film would look like. And 
I mean, I, I <laughs> this is the line I always go to when I talk about turning red. When I first saw the trailer and when I first heard of the idea and then I saw the animation for the lead character, I got really worried because she looked exactly like me, at 13, <laughs> you know, with glasses. And she seemed like one of those, like, you know, the, the kind of girl who's super obsessed with pop culture or some element of it. And, uh, you know, it just, it really did feel like maybe in all these years of asking to be seen on screen, maybe things went too far. And here is this embarrassing <laughs> rendition of who I am. <laughs> And they found your your childhood drawings and they put them in the movie. That was really over the line. Yeah, really embarrassing for you. How did they know? I just, oh God. Anyway, that's where I was coming from with this film. And then when I saw it, I I walked away just having a blast. I I just, I could gush all day about Domi Shi. I think she's just such a genius. She is fearless about creating a fearless character about the you know delivering this like unabashed primal energy (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, in this teenage girl character and in pulling from all these different visual styles and and delivering something that is pushing you know what 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 a pixar film is yeah you know i i I wonder if that's what you took away (laughs) (laughs) lenica what do you think yeah, I also, I went in expecting to love this movie, and I did. Like you both said, it's super funny, it's sweet, it gets at the kind of emotional realities of being a 13-year-old girl. When I heard that it was going to be set in 2002, I was like, oh no, this is going to be <laughs> real. This is going to tap into a time in my life when I was just so earnest and embarrassing. But at the same time, I feel like as I've gotten older, I've become less embarrassed of of myself at Mm -hmm. that age. Like Mm -hmm. I I think of, I mean, this movie made me think a lot of um, Pen15, which I know Mm -hmm. some of us are big fans of, not just because of like the cringy, embarrassing sort of um, element of it, but because it just, it's funny, but it doesn't make fun of what it's like to be that age and be so full of, excitement and uncertainty and enthusiasm it's just it's it's very I think it it kind of um gets at the psychological depth of of kids at that age and so yeah I I liked that this was a film that was not at all making fun of teenage girls and or making fun of the things that they love and surely I actually hadn't seen Bao when it uh, first mm. was playing in front of Incredibles 2. So I watched it in between my first and second viewings of Turning Red. And even though I knew I like knew what would happen, I was still mm. like, I just found myself in tears by the end of it. Mm. <laughs> and and also I just, you sort of notice the, some of the similar themes and tones in, mm-hmm. in Bao as in Turning Red, where you have this mother character who clearly really loves her child, extremely protective, wants to spend all her time with this child, make sure her child grows up to be okay. And then once the child maybe starts pulling away or breaking off to go on their own, the protective instinct turns dangerous. There's like Mm -hmm. a violent edge to it where the mother wants to do anything to keep her child close, even if that means maybe hurting it or destroying it or eating it. Um, And I thought that that was like, even though Turning Red was less dark or violent, I I don't know, there there was a literal, she turns into a literal giant panda that stomps through uh, Mm -hmm. a stadium, but we'll get there eventually. (laughs) Um, But I I felt like there was a lot of that. and, And I kind of appreciated how the film really went there in terms of looking at the sort of the darker side of this, like a very close relationship between a mother and a daughter. Mm-hmm. It is this all-consuming love, right? That Domi she mm. is playing with in Bao. How was school today? Killed it per usual. Check it out. Oh, that's my little scholar. Today, honor student. Tomorrow, UN Secretary General. This is a movie that is so, so funny and so charming because it's about being extra, right? Like it's about... <laughs> You know, like going into the red in all these different ways. And I just like was so taken with it from that very first kind of like stretch of narration. I'm Maylin Lee. And ever since I turned 13, I've been doing my own thing, making my own moves. 
365. The voice actress who plays the main character, uh, Rosalie Chiang, she is just basically shouting her lines. She's like <laughs> monologuing in this kind of like stentorian, like, I am a 13-year-old, but I am basically an adult, and this is what I like, and this is what I don't like, and that, 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 that. And it's like, I know this girl, and um, I recognize that she is basically, she's not an adult, she's a child, because she is able to express herself in this completely authentic, over-the-top way. You know, and the one point in the movie is that, like, what is childhood other than, like, this kind of, like, escalating experience of, of becoming more and more playful and imaginative and um, yeah. intense in yourself for a number of years. And then you run into this wall, uh, mm-hmm. which is both puberty, but also just kind of getting to that age where other people start to notice you as an autonomous creature in the world and mm-hmm. uh, start to make you feel embarrassed about who you are. And you start to kind of quiet down Mm -hmm. and you have to mediate yourself, you know. And in this movie, there's also this other layer of uh, that's brought upon by the parents who have their own uh, experiences in life that cause them to really uh, try to get across this idea that you need to watch yourself. You need to Mm -hmm. quiet down and be careful about how you present to the world. Um, Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, there's a family curse that turns you into a gigantic bear and you won't be able to control yourself. (laughs) So we also have to do a magic ritual to turn you into less of who you really are. And then then you have this kind of like supernatural story. Um, The other thing I love about this movie is that it's, um, it felt completely unpredictable to me. I I did not know what I was really watching. As in, I did not feel like I was prepared for every story beat and knew that like, at the end, she would use her powers to save the city. You know, like that's like mm-hmm. what you might expect from a movie like this, or whatever, like like or mm-hmm. defeat a villain or stop evil Scar from taking over your kingdom, like in The Lion King or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, we it does feel like we're in this moment where uh, children's animation, at least, is uh, really far away from the movies that we grew up with. I want to use this point to talk about how Domi Shi in. The documentary that was released on Disney Plus called Embrace the Panda, and it's about the making of Turning Red. Domi talks about how she didn't necessarily start with the idea to make a movie about uh, a Chinese-Canadian 13-year-old or to make a movie about dealing with a really overprotective mother or anything like that. She started with just thinking that red pandas were cute (laughs) and wanting to (laughs) illustrate them. When I come up with ideas, they'll just start from a very, like, primal, I just wanted to see this cute thing on screen. And then deciding that, oh, okay, as she learned about red pandas, she learned that they were quite individualistic. You know, they they chew and eat uh, bamboo, even though bamboo provides zero nutrients for them. They eat bamboo, but they're not supposed to eat bamboo. Like, bamboo doesn't give them enough nutrients. I kind of imagine it's just like a lazy teenager just eating chips and sleeping all day. She applied story to it, found, uh, you know, red pandas to be a good metaphor for something she wanted to explore more of. And I think she started from a similar place for Bao. And maybe that's why the film has its own sense of discovery. You know, she didn't approach it with a story in mind. She, she didn't begin with like a heroine in mind and a villain in mind. She just started with the fact that red pandas are really cute and she wanted to draw them. Uh, but it, this film does kind of fit into a recent spate of Pixar films where there isn't really a tangible villain. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Encanto. I'm thinking of Ryan the Last Dragon, Frozen 2. Yeah, even a movie like Moana, um, I feel like their plots were harder to predict because there wasn't an obvious there was there was an antagonist like character where you know the main character is at odds with something um and is has to go on some sort of quest to to solve a clear problem in in Moana she wanted to save her island in in Encanto they wanted to save the house mm-hmm. uh and then and then also in Turning Red uh, she well, she wants to go to a four town concert. She wants to raise <laughs> enough money to go to the concert, um, but at the same time, she also wants to make her mom happy. She wants to make her mom proud of her. She wants to, you know, be this obedient daughter. And 
I guess we can set up a little bit kind of what happens when how the panda is triggered, <laughs> um, <laughs> how how the transformation happens because the mom doesn't expect it and uh, doesn't prepare Malin for it. She basically one day sees a cute boy at um, the Daisy Mart and she kind of denies to herself that she thinks he's cute. And then later on, she finds herself kind of at her desk and just absentmindedly doodling uh, <laughs> pictures of him and and drawing biceps and looking at his cute smile. And it's, 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 it's honestly, it's so funny. She She's uh, the, going back to this, like, unable to control this emotion where she just finds herself drawing um, <laughs> these, these sexy drawings of, of, you know, this, of her crush and, and her mom finds the drawings and doesn't once think that her daughter, you know, might actually be enjoying them. She assumes that her daughter is being victimized in some way and goes and, and embarrasses her and oh confronts the boy. And it's the most embarrassing oh scene ever. Um, for, it it for hurts her. even like hear you describe it. <laughs> I'm like I'm sweating all over. Again. Oh my god! I know, I know. Like I'm just imagining the 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 you know she she draws him as a, a merman, um, and and it's just it's like every everyone's worst nightmare, no matter how old you are. Um, but then, but then that night she kind of goes home and tells herself, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to push all of this deep inside me. I'm not going to disappoint my mother again. You know, she, she starts berating herself in the mirror. And this is like maybe one of the first moments where you're thinking she's aware of these desires being somehow stigmatized or, or something she needs to control and contain and bury. And she wakes up the next morning and poof, she's the cutest, biggest, fluffiest, panda and that's kind of where the trouble begins but what I was surprised by was that in a lot of transformation stories the fact of the transformation itself is deeply it's a problem it's a problem that lasts for most of the film and Mm -hmm. the goal is to and even though it is a problem in this film what I was shocked by was how quickly it went from being the secret to being something that she just kind of like went with you know she's Mm -hmm. at school and she's making money off of um taking pictures with people and it's not it's it really goes from being embarrassing to being something that's celebrated so quickly um Mm -hmm. and I I really like that the film did that it made if her turning into a panda is a metaphor for puberty for growing up for rebellion for any of these things I was happy that it didn't continue to treat it as something that the entire world looked at as bad it was just something that was her mother, you know, her mother's idea of this is what you should be like. Yeah, I felt the yeah. same way. The the panda is exceedingly cute. That's like eight <laughs> feet tall. And when you see her friends, her iconic friends, by the way, <laughs> just, you know, the best hugging friends. it and burying their faces in it. No one will help me think. A little panda. Abby, come on, man. It'll clear my mind. Just a little hit. It's so cute. <sighs> Fine. Happy? Oh, yeah. See, this goes back to the unpredictability of this film. I thought that, oh, maybe she's going to continue to try to hide it, right? And she does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, And it'll just lead to a series of hijinks. But instead, the hijinks are kind of um, done with by the time that her friends learn about the panda situation. You know, she she wears that hat for maybe a day at school, but then she just poops in front of everybody. And, yeah, like I'm so sick of um, narratives where that are just like the whole time you as a viewer are stressed about this mm-hmm. protagonist's secret coming out. You know, like mm-hmm. there's there's just like so many movies like that that I kind mm-hmm. of like got a little stressed and concerned that this would just be this movie. But it's to- you're totally right. It's this relief when her friends are at the, her window and she's basically like, "Come on in," and uh, <laughs> then it's then it's like a totally different kind of movie. It's like a let's use your superpowers to have some fun sort of narrative for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels so much more realistic to how, I mean, realistic in the sense that if one of your friends were to turn into a giant panda, you'd be like, oh, that's so cool. And <laughs> yeah, the classmates yeah. would feel that way too. It's a movie wh- that has conflict, but it's sort of like, um, it's not gut-wrenching. It's just sort of like real. And the, the mm-hmm. real conflict is just like, how do I be myself, but also keep my parents happy? And that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she's a straight-A student. She's always done what she is told. That, I mean, the the incredible moment, the, the cringe moment that you mentioned before, uh, Lenica, where the mom marches into the convenience store, confronts <laughs> the person, that, the guy that's being drawn in the book. Devin. I mean, to me, I'm like, what teenager would not fly off the handle and run away or like, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
threaten violence or whatever. <laughs> um, but the, but part of the specificity of this movie is that, no, in this family, like she really will not say one negative word to her mom. And mm. that's another way in which it's telling a story that is less rote than you expect. Mm-hmm. That, than, than you, um, that is, but it's also, I, I imagine, true to how a lot of people have lived their lives. And it's, it's certainly mm-hmm. true to what appears to be the case for her mom, who uh, I guess the one time she did disagree with her grandmother, with the, mm-hmm. the main character's grandmother, uh, ended up slicing her in the face with her bear claw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's what's so special about this film. All of these supernatural elements work ultimately because the rest of it is so specific and rooted in the real. It can borrow from anime visuals and make her eyes go all sparkly mm-hmm. and, you know, when she's seeing her crush or when she's feeling something really potent about Fortown, which we all do. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, this is a story that's not taking place in a fantasy world. It takes place in Toronto in 2002. She has a core group of friends that I think a lot of viewers could see themselves being a part of. And the real conflict here, even though there's, there are supernatural elements to it it, it, it all supports the really resonant feeling of just maybe being unable to communicate with a parent. Mm. I mean, I think what a lot of people have taken away, and that is really specific about this film, is that Um, the immigrant experience does come with this feeling of needing to live up to your family's expectations. They've sacrificed so much to make it over here. You better do your job and be a perfect child or else you are disappointing not just your parents, but your entire lineage. (laughs) But but the film is also just at, at the bottom line is really just about not being able to communicate with your mom. Yeah. It really does feel like a companion piece to Encanto, you know, the other huge Disney streaming hit this mm-hmm. year, which is set in Colombia, but is also about a family with supernatural powers that are mm-hmm. undergoing a crisis that is ultimately resolved by uh, communication and understanding and compromise. Th- like, it really is a sort of like remarkable crop of movies like this like we were saying before it's not slaying a dragon it's doing something much more subtle and real why do you think disney uh, is is trying to make movies like this right now (laughs) 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 or why does the culture want these movies (laughs) or do we i mean we do do we we do do. do. these are hits yeah i think there are i think there are a couple different factors at play the first is that Frozen was such an unexpected hit for Disney. And it was a hit that that actually retooled the villain storyline that we were t- talking about. Elsa was supposed to be the scary, wicked queen who runs her ice castle away from Arendelle. Why do I remember these details? <laughs> uh, but it became... The story got retooled to be about sisters and sisterhood. And Elsa is not this big bad meanie, but just someone who can't get a handle on her powers. (laughs) Which, of course, would be a story beat that you see in future Disney animated films. I think Frozen was such an unexpected hit. Unexpected smash with, you know, great songs, earworms. Um, But at its core, it is about family. It didn't have an explicit bad villain. Uh, And I think Disney started tapping into that well because they saw how popular it became. Along with that, I think there has been this push in recent years for more culturally specific stories. I, I think that there has been this recognition of culturally specific stories being really universal and resonant, uh, that they shouldn't be avoided, that there is an audience for it. And I think as the, you know, the the animators at Disney and at Pixar started recognizing that fact, they they turned to writing those stories and greenlighting those stories. And a lot of them have been really successful and have been Incredible. I mean, Coco is one of my favorite, you know, animated films in the past decade. And I think they've been so successful. So 
so those are maybe more of the visible factors. And then I think maybe behind the scenes, this is another point made in the documentary that I mentioned, Embrace the Panda. There have been more female leadership. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think there are more stories that a lot of these women storytellers are realizing haven't been told as much. When you think about it, tweenage and teenage girlhood isn't really often depicted in in stories for children, even in stories for adults. (laughs) At least to me, teenage girls around the age of 13 often get portrayed as, you know, almost preternaturally wise (laughs) or uh, that's interesting if you think about it teenage girls in films generally you know don't really get portrayed realistically or if they do they end up in films that are rated r and deemed to be only seen by adults like i'm thinking about movies like eighth grade or 13 the characters in those are 13 year olds but they're Mm -hmm. they're in movies that are that are not rated (laughs) for kids it's almost like children's entertainment just couldn't really grapple with mm. the fact that there could be teenage girls. I I mean, I wrote about this just, uh, you know, one of the influences for May in Turning Red that Domi She has talked about uh, was Lizzie McGuire. But if you watch Lizzie McGuire, there's never a mention about her period. Lizzie has crushes, but she's never, you know fully expressing that primal (laughs) side Mm -hmm. um, that I think teenage girls feel. And all of this is just to say that there are, there were probably elements developing in the background that just couldn't be fully realized until this moment, until there were, you know, female storytellers who were saying, actually, you know what, we should, we should make something that is meant for kids. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you mentioned Frozen, and it's making me now think uh, a lot of these movies that we've talked about, Coco, Encanto, Moana, um, Turning Red, Frozen, either they don't have straightforward villains or the the person who is supposed to be the kind of like pseudo antagonist turns out to be a lot more human or, or just, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the story, there's a twist that happens where we, the audience start to feel empathy for that person. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like, or or the vi- the person that we think is the villain turns out to actually be just like, not actually something so scary. So no, that's, I think, sympathetic in Encanto. Sympathetic at least. Right, sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And it's more interesting. I, I think maybe it's just that Disney Pixar, they've, they've realized that there's something more interesting there in playing mm-hmm. with the assumptions of viewers uh, and, and that there's something a little deeper there. I mean, in... In turning red toward the end when there's this sort of like basically a final confrontation between May and her mother. And it's it, it is kind of the closest we get to this like face off where mm-hmm. um, it's it's you know, it's it's kind of violent and intense. But but then we are brought to this kind of middle dimension where they're in this bamboo forest together. And this is one of my favorite scenes in in Turning Red where mm-hmm. May walks up and she sees this crying figure hunched over and she realizes that it's her mom when she was her age. And <sighs> her mom is crying and she has the same bright red hair that May does. And she doesn't recognize her at first. And, and the mom says, you know, she gives this monologue that could be something that May herself would have given. I got so angry and I, and I lost control. I'm just so sick of being perfect. I'm never going to be good enough for her or anyone. (laughs) It's this really beautiful moment where May gets to see her mother not as a domineering figure who's trying to control her and to, you know, make her fit into this strict mold and that she has her own, that she once was like like her, you know, she has this this baggage, and she just she just loves her daughter. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of you see that a lot in these different movies where there's a moment where the protagonist recognizes that something that they thought that they were a victim of that actually the dynamic is a lot more complicated than that. And I I just I love that. Mm-hmm. I think it's so it kind of treats these younger viewers as capable of comprehending conflict as something other than like bad guy versus good guy. And mm-hmm. I think that turning right is just a great example of that. But does it mean that we've moved past uh, 
being able to talk about actual villains in our culture, though. Like, <laughs> like there are real scars and Jafars out there, and, mm-hmm. and, and shouldn't we be, um, you know, as part of this trend that as mm-hmm. we move into these kind of more real-world stories, it would be very sort of politically dicey for Disney to mm-hmm. try to identify who actually are maybe the villains in real-world scenarios here. Yeah. Or very dark and, vi- you know, very dark and disturbing, too, would be the other option. It makes me think a little of, of the, the the discourse around Zootopia and mm-hmm. how people were trying to draw these really clear political parallels in between like who, you know, what do each of these you know characters stand for? And it was just wasn't so easy. And I feel like that was maybe the closest. Like if people are going to be reading into these films, I think maybe Disney Pixar don't want to make the antagonist too identifiable, maybe as something that corresponds to to real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially in these more culturally specific stories, maybe. I, I don't want all future animated films to, you know, eschew a villain. I, I think there's a place for an all-out meanie, especially if it brings back, you know, those excellent villain songs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the villains are some of the best things in, you know, mm-hmm. children's entertainment of past, for sure. I- yeah, yeah. I, I do think the idea to complicate certain villains is a good one. I think um I think instead of, you know, having uh, you know, the the mother be all out terrible, I think is the right idea. This is going to encourage kids to think about the way that their parents view them and what their parents were like as children. But there are other stories that don't require you know, the developing sympathy in the villain. I, I I'm thinking I'm thinking more about the you know, the live action Cruella, for instance, like mm-hmm. we didn't need a revisionist Cruella. This is, <laughs> <There's>, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's something delicious about certain villains. Yeah. We love a lot of old Disney villains, but they, you know, are the company has famously had this tendency for creating sort of queer coded villains. Like yes. we, you know, yes. from Ursula to Jafar to Scar, it's, it's usually someone kind of campy and of of, of a marginalized identity Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. are just so deliciously bad um you know and if if these movies were made now it's kind of like almost impossible to imagine them getting away with not presenting that character side of the story a little more and and showing whatever traumas uh cause them to be Mm -hmm. just so devilish Mm -hmm. um and honestly i mean i understand the impulse to move away from opening that can of worms. Um, yeah. And also, I, it's just like true that, you know, yeah. in, in our lives, um, what are the conflicts that define them day to day? It's a lot more about conquering kind of your inner stuff and uh, working things out with mm-hmm. the people around you. Yeah, right. That these are these are emotionally mature stories to mm-hmm. be telling and, and the villains aren't, aren't so clear cut. Well, thankfully, Turning Red has not bothered or annoyed or pissed anyone off so that's nice right <laughs> controversy free <laughs> squeaky clean yeah no one no one has been talking about this <laughs> there are no villains in the discourse <laughs> there was not a notorious movie review that went viral that said this movie seems like it's aimed at basically five people on earth and i don't get it that didn't happen <laughs> there also haven't been scores of complaints about how uh, we are exposing children to the knowledge that their bodies might change someday. And um, what's, what's, what's another one? Oh, oh, oh no one, no one um, said that this film teaches children how to like disobey their parents mm-hmm. and that it wasn't inappropriate at all for them to talk about gyrations. <laughs> and um, It's like, and are we like, in flash dance or what's going on? <laughs> God. Shirley, unfortunately, had to dig into some of this for a piece that she wrote, so she can she can fill us in on the controversies. I can't say I'm happy to to fill you in on what the discourse has been, but I, I we don't have to <laughs> go into detail because a lot of it yeah. is just is yeah too much. Well, here's the thing: I I, I think um, the discourse, um, capital D discourse, is layered. One is the film criticism element, right? There there was a review that ran in which the argument was that this film was too specific. It was so specific that it would only appeal to the people who um, it happened to be about. Portions of that review went viral and it was later taken down. And uh, the writer, I believe, did apologize. 
when you think about it, if you watch only movies that reflect you, then we can't watch science fiction films. <laughs> we <Yeah>, can't. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but honestly, you can't even be watching animated films because we're not animated, are we? So, so anyway, you could really see the flaws in this argument. The thing is, because it went viral, it did open the floodgates for a lot more nitpicking about turning red more so than a lot of other recent animated films have met. But uh, So specifically with turning red, then a, a lot of... I think a lot of parents came out of the woodwork saying that this film was showing too much sexual content (laughs) around the character of May because she was indulging in having a crush. She was drawing quote-unquote sexy pictures (laughs) um, of her crush. She was gyrating. Uh, You know, she, there was dialogue referencing her having her period without saying the word period. And then those complaints led to further complaints about the film ultimately being about a character who is disobeying her parents. Gosh, all of these complaints, I I just think, are so misguided. You have to really be approaching the film in bad faith to walk away thinking that it's about disobeying your parents or thinking that it is overly sexual i mean yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know it does overshadow some of the things that I, I feel like often we should be talking about more right like with this movie we, we touched mm-hmm. on this earlier the friend group is so well rendered you know i i think um often in animated films and in, in disney and pixar's past at least there's more of an emphasis on um, bromances, <laughs> whether that's between cars mm. or, uh, or you, you know, even I, I, I adore Luca, you know, best friendships between male characters. But here we see a best friend girl group and the way that those form, I think, is so precise and delightful because we don't see that much. It's, <laughs> I could go on and on about mm-hmm. Abby being the, exact representation of kids I knew <laughs> when I was that age. <laughs> Abby's or, the one who's um who only speaks and shouts and, and yes. sort of grunts. <laughs> <laughs> and when playing dodgeball catches the ball with her teeth. <laughs> um <laughs> Who also gets the date of Four Towns concert wrong, Abby, why? Oh, was it not what well, she thought it was in Toledo. Yeah. Anyone can make that mistake. <laughs> But yeah, there's, you know, there's that that then gets overshadowed and overlooked because of the discourse. Just when I first heard the song that they were all obsessed with and they were dancing to and knew all the choreography to, it just brought me back to that exact era, early 2000s, making multiple Zangas dedicated (laughs) to different fandoms, trying and failing to make fan art. (laughs) Giving giving props to people who made good fan art. On that note, I mean, Domi Shi came up by posting fan art on message boards, right? Like that's like kind of mm-hmm. was kind of like her initial encouragement to go into this world. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I love that. Like as a fellow <laughs> millennial who you know did other things on message boards that eventually became feeding into a, a career. Like I just mm-hmm. love what a millennial movie. This, like this is the sort <laughs> yeah. of like revenge of the millennials on the Zoomers in a way. <laughs> um, I, they'll never know the pleasures of deviant art, or maybe they may, is deviant art still around? Is deviant art uh, still around? Zanga, I feel like no it's been supplanted around. by other things now, right? Mm-hmm. As, yeah. But I do love how this film portrayed, kind of to your point, like fandom of different kinds, Spencer, and just you kind of find these things that you love and there are ways to express yourself kind of. Um, And then also, you know, just finding community and things like that. Just, uh, I I love that um, May and her friends are at this concert and they bump into their supposed nemesis. um, We were talking about a villainless movie, but Tyler, Tyler. that little twerp with the ear studs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the super rich uh, uh, guy who who kind of blackmails May into going to his birthday party and, and turning into a panda so that everyone will come to his party. At the end, after making so much fun of them, turns out to be a four-townie himself mm-hmm. and actually in Aaron Z bias, I think he was. But but I love that. I mean, they all, like, he's embarrassed, but as soon as the concert starts, he's just losing his mind like everyone else is. It's, <laughs> 
It's very sweet. <laughs> I mean, one thing I wanted to ask, what do you guys make of this movie's portrayal of um, someone who's a child of immigrants? And and is it part of um, maybe like a wave of movies? I, I, I Maybe I'm just thinking this because I just saw everything everywhere all at once. The mm-hmm. incredible science fictional multiverse tripping make you cry and barf movie that is uh, currently causing conversation and it's also about um the chinese immigrant family uh yeah like what, what's what's going on i i had i just had this conversation with a friend where we were like are there are there too many? Is it weird that like now mm-hmm. uh, there's like millennial stories about d- d- immigrant children? And, and this friend of mine was like, I think this is the most immigrant, like Asian immigrant thing we could be saying right now to be like, is there too much? Mm-hmm. Did we, are we overwhelming? Like, <laughs> is this wrong? <laughs> should we stop? You know what my answer is? I, I don't think we should stop. I think it's interesting that they are coming out at the same time. They do complement each other. Um, in the animation world, I do think, uh, you know, Ancanto and Turning Red complement each other. I think maybe we are just all dealing with very similar feelings. You know, I mean, Holly, if we speak in generalizations, Hollywood does work in waves of mm-hmm. realizing what has hit mm-hmm. very recently and trying to tap into whatever has been popular or or they think that will be uh, popular. I don't know if that was grammatically correct, but I think you get the point. <laughs> um, and, and I do think that, you know, Asian casts and Asian storytellers have been finding their moment very recently. And I I don't mind there being a wave. I something that I am trying to recognize more is is my impulse to be like, oh God, maybe that's been too much. <laughs> like, but Lenica, I do wonder what you think. <laughs> well, I haven't seen everything everywhere. I don't. Oh, right. I, you oh, know, well. I don't think there's. I don't think there's <laughs> see too it before much next of these week's stories. podcast. Oh, <laughs> I I literally the only reason why I haven't seen it is because it's only in theaters and I'm traveling internationally and cannot get COVID before. And so it's been my punishment to hear everybody talking about what an amazing movie it is. And I know it's going to probably be my favorite movie. Um, it just it sounds spectacular. Um, I like I do like what Daniels have done. I think they're hilarious. Um, I love Michelle Yeoh. So it has all the ingredients of a movie that I would love. Um, and I, I also I feel like. A lot of the conversation, if we're talking about those p- two specific movies, though, that I've heard, it has not, even though the sort of commentary on, you know, sort of Chinese immigrant experience is is a theme, it's not, the, it's not what dominates discussion about mm-hmm. those movies. Like, yes, that is part of it, but it also feels like there's so much else to talk about um, <laughs> formally and thematically. And I, I kind of, I, I'm happy that we have gotten to this point where representation can be a small part of a bigger conversation and it's it's not like the only thing people want to talk about because it felt for a little like that was how things were every Mm -hmm. time there was a movie that starred like you know protagonists of color or something it was like oh representation what do we think is this gonna fix fix hollywood's (laughs) diversity problem (laughs) and it feels like that's not that's that's the tenor of the conversation has changed a lot um and i mean these movies are super popular despite the discussion about it only about turning red only resonating with certain kinds of people like i think the the thing that the uh the, the film critic we talked about said was um, it seems like this movie was made for basically the director and her immediate family. And like, I think the fact that so many people <laughs> are watching this is, is proof of the opposite. Mm-hmm. I think very few of us know what it's like to turn into a panda on our, you know, when we're 13 <laughs> years old and it's fine. We still, we, we get what the film's trying to do. And um, I'm, I'm happy I had this opportunity to just to kind of gush about <laughs> how much I, I love this. I know conversations are often more interesting when we can disagree with one another, but I feel like <laughs> we found um, n- sort of nuances in, in our love of this movie and like the different things that kind of resonated with each of us. So Not even I can be the hater on this one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. I really, I love it when Spencer loves something. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about Domi and what makes her such a special talent to have over at Pixar. But I will also say that the fact that this film does blend so many visual styles from her childhood and from, you know, the the works that influenced her is something that also ties the story together. You know, she's she's using those anime influences again fearlessly. She's not trying to 
handhold uh, when, you know, the characters have, you know, their their tears streaming down their face, you know, water falling. Um, she's not afraid to do some like very Sailor Moony, mm-hmm. you know, group shots and, and dream sequences. And, you know, she's building upon the visuals that she loved as a kid, as a teenager, and she's still letting that side of her shine. And I think that only contributes to how specific the vision for this film is and how specific the message of this film is. God, there's so much I appreciate about this movie. (laughs) Well, can we talk about, um, you wrote about this. What what was the moment that you liked the most that you wrote about? Can you describe Uh, this moment? Because I think it's so good too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. My absolute favorite moment in this film is when May, in the form of a red panda, giant red panda, squeezing her way across Toronto, afraid, alone, embarrassed by the fact (laughs) that she is now covered in hair and she's stinky and she can't control herself. She can't be tamed. She stumbles upon Devin (laughs) at the store. Devin is her crush. He's turned away from her. She tries to stop and she can't. She lets out this primal awooga, <laughs> which like, oh, it's something so great. She can't contain herself. She sees her crush and she has to let out that awooga. It's just this, it's this cat call that you've seen in a million other animated, you know, uh, works. And it's usually, yeah, the other way around. It's exactly that. I mean, the, the amazing inversion of the Looney Tunes tradition where yes. you have like, uh, eyes the, bugging out. Eyes bugging out. Yeah, Bugs Bunny running around. He stops. He sees a pretty gal and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, does that wooga. And it's like, we look back, we're like, that's a little weird to have in children's <laughs> entertainment. And it's like everywhere. And we took it for granted. Mm-hmm. And like here, it like takes place within the context of story and it's completely mm-hmm. adorable. And, and so yeah. funny, the way that she like, um, she pounds her little, her big foot, you know, yes. too, like during that moment, like kind of like a thumper. Foot, yeah. Um, it's also like you you link to the still in your piece about mm. this. Um, it's an incredibly beautiful just frame of a movie. Like like the mm-hmm. colors in it, like this the story is like all these pink and blues and like it's this sort of like still life from maybe like a yeah. computer game it kind of looks like. And mm-hmm. then there's the, the red panda in the background with their <laughs> bugging eyes and the tongue <laughs> hanging out the giant teeth and it's just like hang that at it's- the Louvre. It's, yes, please. An incredible image. Well, let's close with a game, a recommendation game. Um, this movie is like such a melange of influences and things that make you think about other things. Uh, what thing that this movie made you think of do you want to recommend? How about that? <sighs> I've talked about this whenever I'm talking to friends about Turning Red, but the character's name is really reminiscent of a character in an anime called Cardcaptor Sakura. And mm-hmm. when I was watching this, because of all the anime influences, I think the recommendations that I would walk away with for people who haven't watched much anime, the Magical Girl anime series that are out there, including mm. Cardcaptor Sakura, I'm thinking Fruits Basket, I'm thinking the classic, you know, Sailor Moon. Dive into those and not the English dub versions or the English censored versions, which take out a lot of, you know, the queer coded material or anything that was at the time deemed inappropriate for children in America. Um, Those series, the magical girl ones, yes, they traffic in all these tropes, but you know what they have? They have awooga moments. They have have Sailor Moon obsessing over Tuxedo Mask. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I've got. Mm-hmm. Lenica, what do you got? Okay, I'm just going to recommend something that I, I teased a little earlier in this conversation. Um, if you haven't already watched Pen15, you've <laughs> probably heard a lot of people talk about how great it is. Spencer, have you seen it? I've seen uh, some of it, like episodes here okay. and there. Okay, okay. Um, I've seen the is... witchcraft moment. <laughs> oh, that episode is so good. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's such a good episode. It's it. That's another show that I mean, a, a, apart from the obvious, like it's cringy and it's f- extremely funny and extremely, um, you know, it takes place around the same. It's around two thousand, um, and so it's kind of this, you know, like m- very very millennial throwback specific. Uh, it's almost like a period comedy or period drama, and at the same time, it also, especially as you start getting into season two, it's also very 
culturally specific um, Mm -hmm. in especially how it kind of delves into the story of the character Maya, who's played by Maya Erskine, and uh, who is half Japanese, half white American. And it it went in these directions that I wasn't expecting. It's just a very extremely funny, big hearted and and sweet and extremely smart and and just a wonderful show. It's on Hulu. I think there's a total of two seasons that are out now. So I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, just just taking a, a dive in. Spencer, <laughs> what about you? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not um, super well-versed in a lot of the references. I'm not someone who is up on my, like, kaiju movie history, which is, like, <gasps> you know, there's, like, a Godzilla moment in this movie that is so good <laughs> and so funny. Yeah, and I, I didn't, like, watch a lot of anime growing up. Um, so, like, this just makes me think of, like, the second-order influences that are probably not good to um, recommend. But... Uh, Y2K. I live through Y2K. Um, and there's a lot of Y2K in pop music right now. So I'll just like maybe recommend uh, the recent album by Charlie XCX, which has a lot of Y2K-ish mm-hmm. references in it. Uh, the song Every Rule sounds like straight out of like a in-sync ballad. Um, mm. And a lot of these like kind of like orchestra slam sounds and really kind of cheesy keyboards and uh, a lot of big feelings. So... Y2K <laughs> revival in pop music is my point of reference here. Yes. Four Town reunion coming. Or Girls 5 Eva, the <gasps> NBC oh, right. Peacock show that sort of made this joke first by uh, imagining a fake girl band from the late 90s who have. Do they, do they have five members or four <laughs> they, members? They start they, with five members <laughs> and then um, one of them gets into an infinity pool accident <laughs> or it's only reference. Yes, she lost her battle with the Infinity Pool was what happened to that with the fifth member of Girls Fire. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Shows written by Tina Fey. Very funny. All right. Well, that's it for our show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. The executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts is Claudine Abade. And our art is by Charlie La Mignon. I'm Spencer Kornhaber. Thanks, Lenica. Thanks, Spencer. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you, Awuga. 